Just during the worship, I was just remembering, um, I used to do the odd RE lesson back in the day. Um, they were a little bit chaotic, but it sort of worked. And um, there was one where the teacher sat at the back, uh, obviously always in the back, I think just sort of monitoring to me, because I'm not sort of some militant Christian evangelist, which of course I am. And um, you're only going there for one reason, that's to lead them all to Christ, isn't it? So... Um, I was sort of doing this gospel sort of stealth gospel lesson and the teacher obviously cottoned on to me and got a bit angry. So rather than stop the lesson, um, she just started throwing out hand grenades, you know, uh, sort of um, arguments against the Christian faith hand grenade. And to be honest with you, I mean, I can think of my feet pretty fast. My mind to mouth can be pretty good. I can say I've just got a motor mouth. But um, she was a bit smart, actually. And there were times when smoke and mirrors doesn't work, you know. So um, I just had to sort of resort to being unusually grace-filled and gracious. And so oh, I don't quite know the answer to that, bless you, you know. Good point, though. Um, and sort of started to deconstruct my lesson, you know. So, oh, that's a bit rubbish, really. Anyway, we got to the end of the lesson and um, uh, all the kids, you know, when the, the bell goes, poof. All the kids are gone, aren't they? Just gone. And uh, the teacher came over to me, and uh, you could see she was a little bit frustrated. And I look, <laughs> this is a bit cocky looking back. I just said, look, I'd be honest with you, I just think you need a piece of Jesus. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I just think you need a piece of Jesus, you know. Um, I used to be quite frustrated like you and think all these kind of things. Then I met Jesus, and it all kind of went away. I'm quite, quite happy now, you know. Don't feel like that anymore. And she just went, oh, I really want that in my life. <laughs> this is amazing, you know. So we led her to Christ in the, in the lesson. And then uh, at the end, uh, we prayed for her and she gave her life to Jesus. And then all the other kids sort of came in the classroom and she was in bits, you know, having to do the next lesson. I thought, this is awesome. You know, it was a totally messed her lesson plans up and everything. And then she started coming to our church. It was really cool. And um, she became a committed member of the church for a long time until she moved away. I thought, wow, that is amazing. You know, God is just at work all the time. You know, I don't know. I'm just, just, just thinking about this while we're sitting down over there. You know, the, the confidence to be bold and to really, truly believe as a church that Jesus is in the business of radically transforming people's lives. That seamlessly linked me to a picture, thankfully. Thank you, Lord. I might have shown some of you this before, but I just, I just love this. And you think, what's this got to do with remembrance? But I just love it. Um, and I've shown this picture around the country at a few different conferences. Just to, that is not Gandalf in the middle. That is, um, it's actually I'm um, linking this to uh, the justice theme. Just, just you know, thinking of the dedication today. Um, do you know who this is? Anyone got an idea who this is? It's not Gandalf. As I said, he's not a high wizard. Anyone, anyone want to hazard a guess? That is William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Do you notice what he's sitting in, or standing in, rather? I mean, look at him. He's got this amazing beard. I mean, it's better than Nick's, if that were possible. And uh, it's a bit, it's a bit, bit more raspy, and it? it's a bit more cultured. Um, <laughs> But, but you notice what he's in? Yeah, this was 1904. 
So cars weren't that prevalent, you know, they were quite rare. But in 1904, in the world, there were 12 Ford Model B cars. William Booth brought up a quarter of the global stock. He bought four Ford Model Bs for, I think back then it was 250,000 pounds. Like a huge, a huge, 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 ridiculous sum of money. Purely for the purpose that he would drive them around the country in a famous tour, stopping at loads of different towns, and pull up in a car, stand in the back, looking like that, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he knew that if he took a car, and no one had seen these things before, he would get a huge crowd. Then he would just stand up and preach the gospel. Jesus died for you. You need to say, he rose again from the dead. Change your life. Bang, bang, bang. Just stand it. And then he'd just go off and, and move on again. Because he knew. He'd turn up in that and they'd get a massive crowd. I mean, look at them. Well, look at the bloke to the left. He's well pleased to be the driver, isn't he? Check me out with my stern face. But they're all like, just there's a crowd, and they've got a horse in the background, so they'd be more used to seeing a horse and car. This is why Dan and I at Redeemer King have set up the Ferrari Fund, isn't it, Dan? Because we know that we'll draw a crowd wherever we go. But I think what I love, what I love about this is just the radical belief that actually the gospel transcends everything else. Let's just get out in front of people. And of course, Booth as well was a pioneer of justice. Ministries, you know, let's care for the poor, the widows, the, you know, the orphans, the destitute, the homeless. And he's the one who came up with the famous phrase, as long as there are, you know, the poor, I will fight. But he didn't just, he didn't just proclaim the gospel, he did stuff as well. And I was reflecting on that with the narrative in the background of my mind this week, while I've been ambling around the country, of the dedication, new life, which symbolises like new hope and new potential and you know, you just look at George William and you think, you know, let's pray that he does become a man of Luke 4.18. Let's pray that he prophetically lives up to his name and sets the captives free. And, you know, that's what you'd want, isn't it, for your son? That, that, it would be amazing if that happened. But and then I think, what about that for all of us? You've got this amazing thing of new life and then the remembrance of those who sacrificed their lives. All happening in one Sunday for us. And you think, you don't want to over-egg it, but... You know, we did try and dissuade Mark Ruth just very gently and pastorally. Don't, don't do the dedication on remembrance. I might not be able to seamlessly link this. But, but actually, the date worked out and you think, okay. And some think, does the Lord orchestrate that to make a point to us about something? New life and remembrance. And then the Lord took me to this Isaiah 9 passage while I was shuffling around Surrey and places, which I read out. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. I mean, this written 700 years before Jesus. You know, for, uh, if there's anyone in here this morning, one or two maybe, that don't know who Jesus is, you need to know there are about 300 passages in the Old Testament were written about Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled them all in his birth, death, and resurrection. That is a massive coincidence. <laughs> 700 years. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer. And his promises. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. 
and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty would accomplish this. So I'm mulling over this scripture. And I think, what does that say to me? Well, it says a few things to me. And it may say different things to you. But one thing it does to me, it gives me great hope. You know, hope is a, is a tough emotion to come by in the 21st century. There's a lot of things that steal our hope. There's a lot of pressures out there that steal our hope. But we are characterised by being the people of hope. Optimism should be our default position, actually. Because we've read the last page. We know that the gospel's got a happy ending. It all works out okay. We've read the last page, we cheated, didn't we? We know it's going to be all right. So that means we have this deep abiding hope in our hearts. Not that we don't go through tough times. I mean, going to visit Simon in hospital and he's got six holes in his neck, don't feel very hopeful. But it's not, I'm not talking about in the immediacy, I'm talking about in the big picture narrative of our lives. We're the people of hope. Therefore, we have optimism. We believe the best. We give the benefit of the doubt. We know things are going to work out okay. That gives a church family, when we understand that, a deep and attractive peace, actually. That we go through the storms of life, the ups and downs, but we know it's all going to work out okay. That we're, we're in the arms of Christ. Or well, I love the biblical picture that we're in Christ, which is what makes him seem so big, you know, it's going to be, we're going to be all right. We often talk about Jesus in me, but I love the picture of we're in Christ. Just feel strong. You know, for all the ups and downs that we have to navigate, we are the people of hope. That's what it says to me. So when you're feeling under the cosh, things are feeling a little bit dark. The Holy Spirit calls us to keep looking up. I use that phrase a lot with people. I sign it at the end of my emails. Keep looking up. I'm sure I annoy people with it. But I think it's so important. Because so much in life forces you to look down at the ground. Because we have a fragility. You know, we have weakness. You know, we get ill. We, we, there's sin. You know, there are things that steal our hope. We believe that we're at war with an enemy who wants to do that and crush us. But when we're in Christ, and when we're filled with the power of his Holy Spirit, you can lift your gaze up and look to the light. And I love the picture of Moses, I mentioned this before, when he was wandering the desert with a bunch of whinging, moaning people in his massive congregation. All he could do was get up in the morning and look to the pillar of cloud, or at night, look to the pillar of fire. And you think, why did God put a pillar of fire there or a pillar of cloud during the day? It wasn't a Holy Spirit Garmin. It wasn't a sat-nav. I think it was because it kept his gaze upwards. It's a visual representation that the Lord was with him. Don't worry that they're moaning at you, Moses. Don't worry that things are tough. Don't worry like you feel you're not going to make it, mate. You're going to be all right. Just keep looking to me and you'll get through it. So practically, I just, I, I, I just think we need to work out what that means for us 
as a church to be the people of hope. I think that means without being living in denial, speaking hope into each other's lives, the hope of Jesus, not a manufactured hope, not life-coaching hope, but the hope of the gospel, the hope that Jesus can radically transform our lives. It means supporting one another during the tough times and the good times. It means sharing life together. It means being a family that is characterised by optimism. But, but, but being there when people are suffering too. Sometimes you've just got to put an arm around people and not say anything, but just be there. Because sometimes the worst thing you can do is say something, because sometimes we don't know what to say. Sometimes you've just got to put an arm around people. That's internally. Then I think, what is hope externally? What does that mean for us? I mean, the Lord is blessing us, and just slowly, you know, week by week, the church is being blessed, and we're growing, and we're growing in depth. We're growing what it means to follow Jesus. We're growing slowly numerically. The Lord is blessing us. There's a grace upon the church, which is very precious. We don't take it for granted. It's all of him. The Lord is blessing us. But our mission is to the 98,000 people at least in Chesterfield that don't know Jesus Christ. 10% nearly of our population in our town are widowed or suffering from deep grief. I think we've got to think about that. Nearly 10% of our population are experiencing family breakdown. Nearly 10%. That's huge. So we've got to think... We don't just want to be proclaimers of the gospel, like Booth in the back of his Ford Model B. We want to be like Booth in being doers of the gospel too and getting that balance right. And, and as Dan and I chat sometimes and as we dream or sometimes I'm sort of driving around the country, I'm lying in bed and I start dreaming and praying about the church. And wouldn't it be amazing if actually this church grew into a resource hub for the community where... where Family breakdown was being actively tackled. What if you could have a facility where there'd be a contact centre one day where, where children are separated from their parents? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could tackle things like debt? Or did you know that Chesterfield has one of the highest levels in the Midlands for underage pregnancy? Wouldn't it be good just to shut our eyes to that? But actually do something about that and be the people of hope. People of radical gospel justice. You know, and, and I've been a couple of times to uh, uh, the Message Trust recently for meetings in Manchester. And I, I was at there speaking at their prayer day and I was blown away. I was surrounded by ex-addicts, ex-homeless people uh, who are now in ministry positions. I've got jobs because of the gospel. The hardest to reach people radically transformed it's not just a theory but if we're to be the people of hope i think we've got to get stuck in we need to see more people in the church getting involved in politics more people getting involved with the council more people getting their hands dirty so it's not just about volunteering for coffee rotors got to think about doing stuff that invades our community with a gospel of love and a gospel of hope and a gospel of radical transformation because it's either a theory in our heads or it's a reality. I don't want the church to have a vision which just stays as a dream in our heads. Which leads me to the next point, which is a bit of a tangent. So as I was reading this, 
and you start asking the Holy Spirit, you know, oh God, what are you saying to me? I, I, I went to those passages in Ephesians. Um, it was a bit random. Oh God, what are you saying? And then I, I was reading through Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, which are amazing passages. And then it said, and this was a bit, you know, sometimes you read the Bible and it's like there's a Holy Spirit highlighter on a verse. Don't you ever have that? It's like you've got a laser pointer on it. You know, it's like, and, and then you read it in a new way and it really hits you. Or it's like a now moment. It's a, it's a word that God wants to give you for now, you know, for the church now. And, and it was uh, Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. So, you know, I'm praying for things in my life at the moment. How can I organise my life so that I can do the right things, not just good things? Because you can do a lot of good stuff, can't you? But they're not necessarily the right things for you to be doing. And I do believe that there is a, a kind of God-shaped life that all of us are uniquely purposed to live. So you're thinking, how's he going to link this to Isaiah chapter 9? Well, I started to think about this gospel of hope and being a church of hope and then this, this growing, this slowly growing army of people who are beacons of light for the gospel because that is what you are. You know, we're sort of like for the gospel in our town, in our communities. And then, because uh, my mind does work a little bit tangentially, I did start reading about purpose and stuff and I came across some amazing things about American baseball which I've never watched in my life, actually, other than like bits on YouTube. So I started YouTubing it all. Um, and I found out this amazing thing, that the average... You just have to bear with me, right? Because I got a bit obsessed about this. But the average baseball pitcher throws a baseball at 90 miles an hour. That means... Because you know they do that weird thing. It's not like cricket, like proper bowling. They bowl the ball a bit weird on a mound. And then... It goes at 90 miles an hour, which means the distance, which I've forgotten, from the mound to the batter, batsman, person. The, the, the speed, whoever it is, stick holder, it goes, uh, it goes from there to there in 0.5 seconds. Right? That means that... That the swing, the decision to swing and everything takes place in a hundredth of a second. The decision to swing the stick, bat. And the whole process to beat the half a second means that the batter does it in 0.4 seconds. Now, to put this in context or to explain this a little bit easier, that's quick. <laughs> a hundredth of a second is really quick. So they did tests on top league baseball bat people and they found out that the top league baseball bat people have 28 vision, which means they can see at 20 feet what most people can see at maximum 8 feet. I.e. they have supervision. You can't be a top flight baseball player in the States unless you have almost super vision. The average league baseball player has 20-12 vision. Now, that's phenomenal. When they've tested, that, that is incredible. I mean, they blow away spec savers. They just beat every test. It's incredible. And then they did some more tests, and they put writing and stuff on the baseball without telling the batter 
what was on it. And then they chuck the baseball at them, not at their heads, but at them. And they can read it. They can read what's on the baseball as it comes towards them. They can even see the stitches. And by looking at the stitches, they can tell which way the ball's turning in the air. Don't you think that's weird? So you think, what's that got to do with a child dedication and remembrance? I don't know. I just thought it was amazing. <laughs> i tell you what it means. They can see the stitches. You will be able to see the stitches in some sphere of life. There is something that you are made for. And God has put you in this church family, if you're a regular attender here, and he's given you a set of skills. And he's given you a character and a personality that's fashioned by him. And some life experiences. And it could be you've had an up and down journey. Well, God will use that. All of us were made with a purpose, it says in Ephesians 2. But the wider purpose is to be a communicator of hope to be a gospel person, to be a worshipper. And within that, there'll be a niche. I think we've got to start praying that we find out what they are and allow the passion to stir up. I, I want the church to be an uncomfortable church, in one sense, because we have godly frustration. I want people texting me and Dan or emailing saying, I've got a real burden about doing this. We've got to do this. I'm getting passionate about it. Some of you might be just sharing your faith. Other people, you might have real skills. Wouldn't it be amazing if we were able to set up a debt crisis counselling centre one day? Wouldn't it be amazing if we had a ministry that was caring for the elderly? But there's a big gap there, talking to... Vicky and so on. I'm not looking at you. I'm not, I'm not pointing you out. I was looking at Vicky. <laughs> Sorry, Dorothy. But I'm talking to Vicky and Alexis. There's, there, there's a gap. So there's an under-provision. Well, we're the people of God. We're an army of people who have been invaded by the gospel of hope. What about peacemaking? What about peacemaking? When, when, when we were planting a church back in the 90s, Karen and I, we were constantly finding ourselves in between warring parties where there was a, a real lack of peace. There was enmity between people on the estate where we were planting a church. And it was a really bruising time, actually. But the ultimate peacemaking is sacrifice, isn't it? And laying your life down. That's, that's at the heart of the message. It's spending ourselves on behalf of people who are dying, literally, without Jesus Christ. I don't know what that does to you, but the thought that in my town, where I'm now an adopted resident from the south, in our town, there are people dying without Jesus Christ. And that, that should break all our hearts. 
new life. Remembering. And we live in this gap before Jesus returns. This is our watch. This is on our watch. This is our time with the other churches in the town. I mean, dear God, you know, don't let us come to the end of this great adventure and just add really good worship. I mean, let's, let's have created a frustrated, messy church, but people's lives have been radically transformed. That'd be great. I'm going to read you this little passage as I finish up, because I think this spells it all out. I was praying with someone this week and read this out. This is another prophecy about Jesus, written 700 years before he died on the cross, which is an amazing, bizarre coincidence, for still questioning this. Isaiah 53, which links beautifully into the word that came out during the prayer time. Surely, this is talking about Jesus on the cross. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me explain what that means. In a nutshell. The reason we can have hope in hopeless situations is because on the cross when Jesus died, he bore hopelessness. The reason that we can know healing supernaturally and emotionally, physically, whatever, is because on the cross, Jesus' body was crushed so that we can be made whole. The reason that we can be optimistic is because Jesus stood in a gap and took the forces of darkness into his body and took on the enemy and destroyed him at the cross. And he didn't exercise power and authority with a sword or a gun. He did it with nails through his hands and feet and sacrifice. And that is our role model. So we live this duality. We can, lead, we can pray for hope and experience hope and tackle suffering because of the cross. But also we in turn, as the people of God, are called to lay our lives down like our master and commander did as well. We are not here just to be happy. Well, our happiness is a splendid thing. We are also here to do damage against the forces of darkness. And as I look around this church week by week and I watch people being added to our number, I see some supreme talent, intellect, manual ability, all sorts of stuff, all in this hodgepodge, all being a family together. I cannot believe that is not for a gospel purpose. We've just got to find what it is. So your homework is this. Get frustrated. Get bolder. Pray that you find the stitches. What was I made to do? Where can I see the stitches? What can I do that is characterised by hope? In my work life, in my family life, at the school gate, wherever it is God places you, where can I, where can I be a gospel person? And there are people in here who are sharp evangelistically, who have brought friends along because they just have that thing. There are other people who have got manual ability. We're going to need you. There are other people who have got a 
burden for social justice. We need it. It's all got to go into the melting pot of being a dynamic community that breathes hope, life and peace into Chesterfield and helps reach the 98,000 people at least that are dying without Jesus Christ. New life. Remember, we live in the in-between bit now. We're here to do a job. It's a great adventure. We've come to the end of one year. We're moving into the next season. I think we've got to stop calling ourselves a new church. The church. We're a kingdom outpost. We're a beacon of light into the town in partnership with the other churches. Let's see what God does with it. So please pray over the next week or two. And as we move into a new vision night, whenever we set the date for that, as we do that, we want the church bubbling over with frustration and ideas of what we can do to reach the lost in this town.